welcome to ESPN, the Bar Post podcast. The Matildas, Cup of Nations champions, once again, what a delight, what a joy. Um, they defeated Spain 3-2 in Paramount. I'm smiling so much saying that sentence. What a fun sentence to say. Um, the Matildas won. They defeated Spain 3-2. Courtney Vine opened the scoring with just the most immaculate goal you've ever seen in your life. Claire Polkinghorne continues to moonlight as a striker and we absolutely love to see it. And Caitlin Ford made it three before half time. Spain did work their way back into the game in the second half and both of their goals were very beautiful. So Olga Carmona and Alba Redondo, beautiful goals, beautiful goals, but they could not do anything about it. And the Matildas beat Spain. 3-2. I, I can't stop. I can't stop saying it. Naturally, lots to talk about. Very, very exciting episode incoming. But um, before we begin, we want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands we're recording on today, the Wurundjeri and Gadigal people, and pay our respects to their elders past and present. For today's ep, you've got me, Marissa Lodanik, Sam Lewis, and Angela Christian Wilkes. So, friendos, uh, I'm going to say it one more time. The Matildas defeated Spain 3-2. <laughs> And I'm so happy about it. It's so, it's so pleasant. It's so nice, especially um, Sam and I were talking about this in the car on the way back from Parramatta. Just um, there was so much talk at the start of Tony's tenure about our record against top 10 nations. And in the last two windows, we've beaten two top 10 nations. So obviously the record's still not fantastic, but it is moving in an upward trajectory, which is really, really lovely. But um. Like I said, there's lots of fun things to talk about from this game. Where would you guys like to start today's chat? Oh my lord! <laughs> um, I, I like let's okay, let's talk about that. It's a cliche again, but this game in particular very much was a game of two halves, and I think it's important to break down why and why the first half that we saw from the Matildas was probably the outside maybe of the Sweden game was maybe the best half of football that they've played in the sense that in the context of the opposition and with the players they had available and the style of football that they executed, it was like it ticked every single box that they needed to tick in that context. So like from basically the opening whistle, the like the Matildas were dominant. They like Tony Gustafson said in the, in the build-up to this game in particular, this was going to be a game where it was the best passing team in the world against the best pressing team in the world. And in that first half, we saw that the pressing team came out on top. And uh, like ultimately as well, the Matildas actually had a lot of the ball. They became almost the passing and the pressing team at the same time. It was kind of extraordinary. In Spain, they didn't know what to do. They didn't seem to have the same off ball um, structure to them. They didn't, cause they're not used to that. They're not used to not having possession. And so they, when they didn't have it, they were like, all right, well, what do we do now? How do we get it back? And they were sort of just for the first, probably 15, 20 minutes, they were really just chasing the Matildas around. Uh, it was, yeah, it was incredible. And like Australia were, they were so like, they, they played with such conviction. They knew exactly what they needed to do and the formation that they used to do it, I think was perfect. Um, and Marissa, we spoke about this in the last episode when we were previewing this game, we were really curious about how Tony was going to set this team up in order to counteract 
the threats that Spain posed. And I think the way that he went about it with this initial 4-4-2 sort of flexible um, formation where you sort of had much more room for Courtney Vine and Hayley Rasso to run forward, but also to drop back and help to defend at the same time. You had Caitlin Ford and Sam Kerr just like absolutely vibing off each other up front. And they played in that really direct transitional, like sort of heavy metal style. It was just so fun to watch, you know, you just like, there were moments like I was doing the live blog for the ABC, but there were, there, I realized that I would look down and I hadn't written anything for like five or six minutes because I was just watching. Like it was just so much fun to watch. And he wanted to just like, something was going to happen almost every single time the Matildas had the ball. It was, it was wonderful. Um, yeah. And Spain, they, they didn't seem to really know what to do. And it, it, it all sort of coalesced in the fact that they copped three goals in a game for the first time in 51 games, like a couple of years worth of games. This is the first time that they'd conceded three goals, not just in a full game, but in a half. Like that's wild, you know? Uh, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was amazing. I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about it and why it all sort of worked the way that it did. And also the difference with the second half, which I think there are a lot of criticisms about that and they were justified. Um, but I'd be keen to know what, what Angela's take on it all because it was, I was absolutely vibing it. I was watching at the pub. Um, and was, yes, as as I want to do with these things. Uh, yes, gr- good times. Grey hits. It was. Uh, is that the right expression? I'm actually not too sure. Um, but yes, court. I, I just want to have it on the record. So Vine, Polks, Rangers. Yes. Um, you got to hand it to him. You got to hand it to him. Um, I that first goal from Courtney Vine, sensational, and I think that she had a she had a great first half as well. Um, I feel like she's she's got to be going to the World Cup, right? But let's. I don't want to jinx anyone. I don't want to do any uh, funny business here. Touch wood. Touch my head. All of that stuff. But yeah. Um. I mean, there were some touchy moments in the first half like early on in the first half, some some chances for Spain, like Camoso got to the, there was a moment where she just kind of mishit the ball at the the near post. Um, and there was another, like Redondo was like all, all like doing so much um, for Spain in this game as well. So they were getting through, but I think, yeah, the, the defending like was really, let me say that sentence again. <laughs> the de- the Matilda's defending was um, high intensity and they were able to keep it out. And I think like we talked about this pre-pod, but we need to give a lot of love to Mackenzie Arnold. It wasn't just, she didn't just have like a good first half with keeping that clean sheet. The goals in the second half yeah. were from Spain were absolute bangers. Um, and I don't think, yeah, there wasn't really much she could do about those, but her, she actually made some fantastic saves. There was one, one of those keeper saves where her body just kind of like quopped, but it just like got the leg (laughs) to the ball and it was just amazing. I love it. I love it when keepers do that, where they're just like, this is a podcast. (laughs) I forget that this is an audio medium. Do you know what it is Uh, for me? The millennial reference that is quop. The Quop, children don't know what yeah. quop is. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew exactly, like, I saw it instantly, so I loved it. Yes, Please, uh, yeah, continue. Yeah. I loved it. 
And it was so true, right? She just sort of like flailed her limbs out and happened to be exactly in the spot she needed to be. And I know exactly the moment you're talking about, Angela, where she like, she stuck out a foot and the ball just like ricocheted off her shin. It was when one of the Spanish wingers, I think was through one-on-one with her even as well. Um, and it could have been a goal. Like the shot was perfect. We were positioned in the media box exactly behind the sort of trajectory of the shot. It was going bottom left corner and had Maka not stuck out that leg exactly when she did, it absolutely would have gone in. And But it spun out for a corner and then the corner was defended really well. It was, yeah, it was probably the best performance that we've seen from Mackenzie Arnold, I think, in a very, very long time. She hasn't started the game for a while because we've seen that she is a little bit clangor prone. And she was really like low on confidence as well. Um, like Gustafson said in the in the post match presser that she is very conscious of the fact that she hasn't been able to translate her really good form at club level into the national teams. And we've talked about it on the pod as well, you know. And we've been sort of asking the question of what's been going on and, and why the jump seems to be a little bit too much for her. But these past two games have, I think, really shown that she has she's made it like she's 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 jumped over the bar now and she's capable of not just um being a goalkeeper in a game against a team like Czechia who don't necessarily pose as many um defensive challenges to the Matildas as what Spain do but that she can back herself up like in two games in a row as well um and to pull out some of the saves that she pulled out Mackenzie Arnold of a couple of years ago wouldn't have been able to do that, I don't think. I think what she has been able to do at West Ham is become a much more um, physically capable goalkeeper than what she used to be. She's able to do things now and trust her body to do things now that I don't think she could have done a while back. So, yeah, it was amazing. And Emily Van Egmond said in the mix zone afterwards as well, like absolutely unprompted. She said, I just want to give a shout out to Mackenzie Arnold. We thought that she was the player of the game. She absolutely kept us in it. Because there were a couple of really big chances that Spain had in both halves where they could have added a goal or two, but Mackenzie Arnold was there to stop it. And that's that's what you want to see. You know, you want to have competition amongst your goalkeepers. So it's really, really good to see that now that Lydia Williams has sort of fallen down in the pecking order, it's not just a simple Tegan, Micah, Maka, Lydia, Lydia. It's like a Maka and, and Micah sort of playoff, which is, which is great. It's great for competition, you know. We said it in the last pod and it really is intensely comforting that if we get to July 20 and honestly any three of their names is on the team sheet as the starting goalkeeper for the game against Ireland to start off the World Cup, I would feel pretty confident with any one of them in there and that's a real credit to what Mackenzie Arnold has done over the last few months to Mm. bring that club form into the national team setup. Um, And I think it's really interesting just to talk about the first half a little bit more. The most pleasing thing about it wasn't just obviously that we scored three goals and we looked really good and blah, 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 blah. But it was that Mackenzie Arnold was making these saves because Spain, like you think going into half night, half time, Australia 3-0 up, Spain were rubbish. They weren't. They weren't even a little bit rubbish. They were really, really yeah. good. But it was a credit yeah. to Mackenzie Arnold making those saves, stopping those goals, the rest of the defence kind of doing their job as well. Um, and just the the tactical and formational – formational? That's probably not a word. The tactical and formation decisions made by Tony to combat Spain in the first half in particular, it was – executed to perfection like every single thing worked the decision to go like the 442 and to go really top heavy 
not only did it mean that there were lots of bodies kind of in and around defending from the front, um, and I pointed this out on Twitter, I was like, the unexpected consequence of that was that once we did kind of press Spain and get the ball back, we had four fast as heck options to play the long ball out to or, you know, the little through ball to. And then they were one-on-one with the keeper. And you can't tell me that, you know, Courtney Vine, Sam Kerr, Caitlin Ford, Hayley Razo, you wouldn't, like, any one of them, 1v1 on the keeper, sensational. You know they're going to take on any defender. You know that they're faster than the defender. And you know there's a pretty good Mm. chance they're going to at least force a save out of the keeper. Um, So, yeah, I just, for the whole pitch, the whole team, everything in that first half to me was just perfection. And, you know, there was a healthy dose of luck. Or not luck, but, you know, Spain weren't pushovers. But I think that's the more pleasing thing, that we were able to take our chances even if Spain weren't. We were able to keep Spain Mm -hmm. out and go down the other end and do the thing. Because I know there's been many podcasts we've recorded post-Matilda's games where we were like, if only more of our chances had gone in. But, you know, Mm. we, we got our kind of luck in this game so it was really pleasing and yet Mackenzie's performance was just it was good it was really really good and I was really really stoked for her because we've said you know like the way she has played has warranted questions and criticism but by the same token her performances these last two games have absolutely warranted kind of gushing and just lashings of praise because she really has been excellent but um we, we need to move on because the first half was the first half, but it was, to use the old cliche, a game of two halves. And it was a game of two halves intentionally, it seems, by uh, Tony Gustafson and his choices. So what exactly changed in the, uh, the second half, rather, that made things a, a little bit more dicey is the way I'm going to phrase it? The players. Sorry. <laughs> it's correct. You're allowed to elaborate on it as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, th- I, I think the in terms of the, I guess, diagnoses for what happened in the second half, I would say that the substitutions is actually probably lower on the list in terms of impact than the formation. But um, there were some interesting subs uh, I guess maybe because we were in a position where we had the upper hand. I don't know exactly when coaches, like, wh- when they – they must have, like, an array of different options that they can look at going into halftime, looking at the scoreline, looking at the performance in the first half. Because if we were not doing as well, I doubt that this would have been what hap- – like, these decisions would have been made. So we had that flexibility and that three – you know, nil buffer to, to play around. And that's the whole point of these kind of friendlies and to be able to figure out these, these things now. But, um, where was I going? The players. Yes. I wasn't entirely convinced by the substitution of Crummer on, um, I think it was about like the 60th minute. I've actually written it down. Yeah. So, um, oh no. Yes. Am I right? No, sorry. Let me say that again. Yeah, around the 60th minute, um, Kramer came on for Rasso. And in terms of, I guess, and the Matildas were sitting back, but I just, it, the 
going on the counter and having that high intensity crumb is not necessarily the player I would pick to fulfill that kind of role. I don't, she's not a particularly, she is fast, but not in the way that like a, a vine or a Rasso are fast. Um, and she's not, not really a pocket rocket. She's not a pocket either. She's quite a tall gal anyway, but I just found that I, I would have, if, if I was Tony, I would have put chids on perhaps, or, or someone who can bring that little bit of spark to push things forward, but while also having that defensive, like conservatism that was there a little bit in the, in the second half. Um, yeah, I, that was interesting for me. I mean, uh, Nevin came on for Polks, I believe, um, which I think Nevin and Hello, Melon's been very affectionate um, right now, so I'm a bit distracted. Uh, Nevin on and Courtney Nevin and Claire Hunt on together, even though so two quite inexperienced centre backs at national level. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Again, because um, Tony said something really interesting in the presser. Well, not really interesting. It makes complete sense in terms of what we know about him and, and this Matilda side. But so for players like Charlie Grant, for example, putting young players in high intensity situations against good opposition is what is going to get them to improve. And we've seen that with the likes of a Charlie Grant. So seeing someone like Courtney Nevin go in when we've got this like three nil score line against Spain, it's high intensity. It's a lot of pressure, but that's, you know, that's the thing that's going to get her to improve. Uh, but yeah, I don't, that, that's not a criticism of that sub necessarily. I'm just making note of it. Anyway, Sam, did you have any thoughts on, I guess also Van Eggs on for Kara Cooney Cross. Kara Cooney Cross is a bit more, uh, has a bit more, I guess, uh, drive and, and can do that pressing, I think a little bit better than Van Eggbond. Um, I, I wrote in my notes, I was like, I think. I feel like Van Egmond was put on this earth to vibe. I'm not really sure what she's doing at the moment, but I haven't <laughs> seen too much of her in, in, in the, in the Matildas as of late. And I feel like she's not, she's, she's not doing anything bad, but she's not necessarily the luxury sub that we've kind of hypothesized that she might have become. Um, and we, because we've got kind of depth in the midfield at the moment. Um, yeah. I've got some kind of, question marks around uh the special thing that she can bring if she is a half like comes on in the second half but yeah. anyway sam yeah 100 percent. yeah no i i agree i think th- both of the strands that you point out there angela one is the change of formation and one is the kinds of players that you bring on at certain moments in the game to either continue on with a certain style or a certain um philosophy or bring them on to change that style or philosophy. And I think that those two things didn't quite work together. We had a change of formation that necessarily meant the Matildas were going to sit a little bit further back. They were going to sit deeper. They were going to allow Spain to have a bit more of the ball. Um, And that's sort of like, like, you know, you know that this is a team who is very, very good when they have the ball at their feet. So why would you choose a formation that allows for them to maximise that skill? That's the thing that sort of baffled me. I was like, why? Like, other than maybe just testing it and seeing what this looks like when you're in a game, you're 3-0 up and your sort of forward five players um, perhaps need to be load managed and they've played back-to-back games now. They're quite tired. You need to be able to think ahead to the next game as well where you may you may need them too. 
how do you then make decisions that is going to like keep you in the lead in this in a game like this against an opposition like this while also um still sort of like keeping your eye on all these other different factors as well and who do you turn to in a moment like that so i think that those questions um were not quite perfectly answered here but you can sort of see them being asked i think is and that was that and that's the point right that's the point of playing friendlies like this it's to be able to sort of um artificially construct situations that you could potentially find yourself in when it matters and what do you and you rehearse it it's a role it's it's a dress rehearsal it's the whole thing of this this cup of nations it's meant to be a dress rehearsal for the world cup so what do you do how do you create situations that you can practice certain outcomes and in this situation we saw for a whole half there was this shift of formation they had that buffer as you said Angela of three goals so what do you do when you can't rely on the high energy press that has so far been working really well and playing in transition with these really fast players but instead the only players that you can turn to are largely players who are a bit slower players who are a little bit bit more defensively minded um, and players who you sort of need to be able to throw into the deep end against a team like Spain to see if they can swim. Um, I I think that those two things um, resulted in what we saw in the second half, which is that you brought on a, a, like a Larissa Crummer in a sort of more defensively minded wide role. You brought on an Emily Van Egmond, and you also brought on an Elise Kellen Knight, and those players are not quick. And some of them are also not really in form. So when you make a big switch like that in terms of players and you you, you change the formation in order to accommodate their um, their lack of speed and their more defensively minded capabilities, I think you see what we saw. Like, I think that was the outcome. Um, whether that was the right thing to do uh, is another question. Whether that was the necessary thing to do, I think is a more important question. I do think it was necessary because you need to be able to figure this stuff out now you need to know the players who you can turn to in a moment like this and who, maybe more importantly, who you don't turn to. And I feel like that was the learning from that particular half of football. And Gustafsson said after the game as well that um, he is fully aware that his decision-making in terms of the substitutions um, affected the second half. And he said it in a way that suggested that he made some mistakes, um, that he could have done things better. So he's going to like go back and look at all the tape. He's going to look at the timings of certain substitutions, the combinations of players he brought on and off um, and see what could have changed and what could have made um, the result a little bit more perhaps comprehensive and a little bit more convincing um, without sort of copying those two late goals, which were stunning. Um, but at the same time, you have to wonder like if the players were capable of producing that kind of attacking performance, if Spain were capable of producing that kind of attacking performance, why weren't they able to do that in the first half? What was it about the Matildas that prevented them from doing that? Um, because you know, also Spain made some very good substitutions, including bringing on Marta Cardona, who's a very experienced winger, and she immediately had an impact. Um, so, yeah, like all this sort of stuff, like it's fascinating being able to sort of look at this in that more systematic kind of way and and the, the bits and pieces, the cogs of the machine being sort of taken out and replaced by another cog and, and how all the, that stuff sort of fits and affects the system. Um, but yes, so I, I do think, the only thing that I'm really disappointed by is that Alex Chidiak didn't get more minutes. I feel like this was like a game that was primed for her and considering we were 3-0 up, I really would have preferred to see her come on 
um, on the hour mark rather than Larissa Crummer because I don't think Crummer offered anything either going forward or defending. It was a really bizarre substitution to me, whereas Chids, we know the kind of energy that she brings when she comes off the bench. She was flying on confidence as well after that great outing against Czechia. So, like, why, why not give her a bit more of a crack, allow her to get the ball at her feet, to run at Spain's players and to see how she can affect a game, how she can change a game in a moment like this as well as in a moment like what she had against Czechia. So, yeah, so that's probably my only sort of major, like, what the hell was that about question. For me, the thing about the second half, and I literally wrote this down while you were talking, was that questions like the ones Tony artificially made in that second half, they can be asked and they can be explored because it is a friendly tournament, which is good. You don't get many opportunities to play against top 10 nations and also be in that position where you're not just ahead, you are comfortably ahead. Um, Mm. And the other good thing about it is in that situation, because we ultimately ended up winning, no one panics about the second half necessarily. Like there were things obviously that we saw, didn't like, did like. There were questions raised and like you were talking about some answers, um, some things that were learned, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. But no one's here having a meltdown because we conceded two in the second half because we ultimately ended up winning. Um, And it it really is like it's a real dumb thing to say, but it really is a a soothing balm just winning in the end. Um, But, yeah, I think it is it's good and it's good that Tony is learning this now and figuring these things out now rather than, for example, uh, the second half against Canada in Melbourne come July 31. Like, you know what I mean? So I'm all for it. And like I said, I think a lot of that comfort from the way the second half went down comes from the fact that in the end we did end up holding on to the lead and the win. So it's good stuff. One final thing to talk about from the game before we get to obviously the the universal how good of this game. Um, But it was really pleasant and it was a question that came up a couple of times in the press conferences with both the players and with Tony. Um, We have depth across the park. What is that that alien (laughs) word that you are using, Marissa? The Matildas have depth and they have players to call on. I'm not going to go ASMR again, but... um, We just, like, we wrote it down, just those players who, and all of these players that we've literally got on the rundown had, I think, zero caps or maybe one or two before Tony started. And now they are, have more than proven their worth um, in most cases. So, Angela, do you want to talk about any one of the the players where we're um, just highlighting the depth that the Matildas have? Sure. Um, Just pick whichever one uh, tickles your fancy. Courtney Vine. Courtney Vine. Courtney Vine. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of her and I think um, she's slotted, like as we saw in that first half, the way that she plays um, or at least the way that she is able to play in this Matilda side fits really well with the likes of Kerr, of Rasso, of Ford. So that's... So, so exciting. And it's just been such a, I feel like with, with a lot of the names that we've 
listed here it it's weird because it's probably felt not that fast their kind of ascendancy but to think that Courtney Vine really hadn't played that much for the Matildas this time last year um and now it's like hard to imagine a squad without her in it and there'd need to be like from in my eyes quite a good reason as to why she wouldn't be listed or picked in any upcoming squads is just kind of phenomenal and I think um a testament to how uh, these younger players especially have been managed um, over the duration of Tony's tenure. So, yeah, big fan of Courtney Vine. Um, I think someone who I'm kind of – who's still in the conversation, who I'm curious to see how they will progress is um, Claire Wheeler. We haven't seen a whole lot of her recently and Alex Chidiak as well I think um that she still hasn't kind of hit her ceiling in the Matilda setup and there's like a long way to go but the fact that we have Claire Wheeler and Alex Chidiak in these conversations is also a really exciting thing um but yeah I I mean I also mentioned Charlie Grant earlier I didn't know if you wanted to speak to her Sam pack it away yeah yeah 100% (laughs) and just yeah bouncing off that because like I think this is a window and, and this is a game in particular where it's really worth taking a big step back and actually thinking about how far this team has come and what Tony has achieved with them uh, based on his two sort of major, um, I guess, pillars when he was first hired, right? So when he when he first took over the job in January of 2021, there were two sort of main mandates that he was tasked with. The first was getting the team prepared for major tournaments. And the second was trying to build depth and to accelerate the development of young players. And we spoke about it in the past that it was unfair in some ways to ask him to do both of those things at the same time, particularly in the build-up to things like the Olympics and the Asian Cup, because on the one hand, you can't quite bring in a whole crop of new players, players who have literally no international experience at senior level and expect them to be able to win titles. You can't do both of those things. You can't balance them. And so we saw over the course of the first sort of 18 months under him, a number of quite bad games, but like bad performances, bad score lines. And understandably, the more that the losses piled up, a lot of people started to get quite anxious about where this was headed and what the point of it all was. Um, and whether we were just going backwards when everyone else was charging out ahead of us. But Tony, to his absolute credit, and the players as well, always stuck by and always had the same messaging around this project, that this is about building depth, this is about building uh, versatility, and it's about preparing the team for the ultimate tournament, which is going to be the World Cup. And I think what we're starting to see now, and it started in that series against Denmark and South Africa, is finally the Matildas have turned that corner. We're starting to see the outcome of the first pillar of those two um, job descriptions, basically. We're seeing, finally, depth. We're seeing the players who he has brought through. He has accelerated them because we don't have the pathways established at youth national team level just yet. We've seen them in Kyra Cooney-Cross becoming basically a starting midfielder alongside Katrina Gorey. 
we've seen uh, Charlie Grant come in and basically be like Ellie Carpenter 2.0, like particularly in the last two or three games, she's been absolutely ripping. We've seen Courtney Vine come in and become another, like another winger, another Hayley Rasso level winger. And we're also like, even now we're starting to see the emergence of Claire Hunt who started this game alongside Claire Polkinghorn in place of Alana Kennedy and in place of, you know, an Ivy Lewick even who we saw starting against Czechia. Like this is depth and this is what Tony has been trying to do. And this is what, these are all the small things that he has been building, all of the built, all the little bricks that he's been putting in place of the foundation of this team. And we're actually starting to see what all of that work over the past two years has been leading to. And that's what's so exciting to me because like, imagine how overwhelming it must have been for him to come into this role, to be presented with this information about how the Matildas have struggled against top opposition, particularly opposition in the top 10 of the world, um, how massive the gap was between the sort of the core senior starting players and the, those players on the fringes or those players who are coming up through the youth ranks and the acceleration of all the nations around them. Imagine being Tony and coming in and being like, fix all of this, please. And like, we're sitting here now and we've just beaten Spain with four players starting in on the field who hadn't had a single cap until he arrived. And they all played really well. Like we're talking about them because they played well. We're not talking about them just because they were, they're young or because they're, you know, whatever. We're talking about them because Courtney Vine scored a cracking goal. We're talking about them because Charlie Grant had one of her best performances at right back. We're talking about Claire Hunt because she started in her second ever game and she was pretty good. Like she, like for someone who's never played at this level before, she was pretty good. And Kyra Cooney-Cross has been an absolute revelation in midfield. Like, this is, this is where we are. So being able to sort of take that macro lens and actually looking at this as part of the longer term Tony project, that's what gives me so much joy and so much validation as well. And I'm so thrilled for the players and I'm so thrilled for him because there was a time there and we were part of this conversation as well where a lot of people were losing a lot of faith, particularly after the Canada series. We were like, it does not feel like this is getting any better. We can't see any progress. We don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. We don't know where this is leading. And that not knowing was the thing that was causing, I think, a lot of fear for a lot of people. But now we've, we're on a six-match winning streak, which is the first time that the Matildas have won six games in a row since 2017, which started with that amazing tournament of nations where they beat the USA, they beat Brazil, they beat Japan. That was the last time there was a six-match win streak. So what an interesting sort of uh, full circle moment to, to go back to something like that, because that moment, that 2017 moment was when the Matildas really sort of took off and it really catapulted into the, the minds of the rest of the country and people started to really get on board. So that's, that's what makes me really excited is what this moment now means for the Matildas going forward. And it's so funny that it's that 2017 moment, because now obviously with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that that 2017 moment was obviously so exciting and so necessary for getting the Matildas to become like one of the nation's most beloved sporting teams but it also created so much hype and expectation that the team Mm. could simply never meet Um, and you know I think we've spoken about it before the fact that it also happened in the one year in the four-year cycle that didn't have a major tournament also, it was like yeah. we've peaked at the wrong time. Um, That's right. So it's yep. so funny now with hindsight knowing that 
that 2017 moment was kind of a double-edged sword. Um, but we've now gone through some ups and downs, but we seem to be coming, everything seems to be coming good. Like we seem to be peaking at the right time. And, the right time. Which is something yeah. we've, I think, been blasting on this pod for a little while now. Um, and just yet yeah, it's really seeing what Tony was talking about for the last two years actually happening on the pitch. I think that's what frustrated a lot of people, particularly it kind of culminated um, during that Canada series where it's like, you've been telling us that we're meant to see this, 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 and this, and we've maybe seen glimpses of two of them. Like, what are you seeing that we're not? Yeah. Um, so yeah. the fact that now everyone kind of is like, oh, yes, this is the stuff. Ah, so this is it. Yeah, and, ah, okay. and also just the fact that the Matildas have been able to turn it on five months out from the World Cup, not at probably yeah. 100%, but a lot higher than, you know, September last year against Canada, immensely pleasing. And yet the depth is a, a huge, huge part of that. And I really think for me it's Charlie Grant's progression. There's maybe a caveat or whatever that, she probably doesn't get as much game time as she does if uh, Ellie Carpenter doesn't do her knee. But being able to watch Charlie Grant basically like bloom and progress in front of our eyes has not only been joyful because she seems like an absolutely just lovely, bubbly person, but just seeing her growth, seeing that now she's doing things, not only is she defending really well, but I feel like we've noticed particularly over the last three windows She's becoming more confident in going forward, in being part of the attack, in interplaying with whoever happens to be on the right wing with her, whether that's a Vine or a Razo or whoever it is. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's delightfully uh, perplexing having options. And obviously it's not perfect, but there's a lot of really good things to like. Um, and speaking of really good things to life, the thing we need, that was not a good sentence. Speaking of things we really like, uh, the perfect way to end this pod is obviously the fact that uh, this game was gay. It was very, very gay. <laughs> um, that That's the crude way of saying it. Uh, Football Australia during the week announced that they had partnered with World Pride Sydney um, and the Matildas donned pride flag coloured numbers for this game and it was just... It was so awesome to see and I think Twitter was basically like, where can I get the rainbow numbers? I want the rainbow numbers. Give me the rainbow numbers. Um, and also it was just really nice post-game hearing all of the players speak so um, positively about it and openly about it, about how much it meant to them as a team and how stoked they were that they could continue to represent the fullness of Australia. I think back to, you know, the Olympics where they made the decision to, you know, pose with the Aboriginal flag and make their own sort of statements um, that were relevant to Australia. So it just, it was a really nice moment of this team is doing everything it's can to be as reflective of Australia as it can be. So it was a really nice moment, but those are, that's my take on the pride numbers. I know you two definitely have takes on the pride numbers. Yeah, it was amazing. And first of all, I think we should um, absolutely just make it very clear that the pride numbers are the reason the Matildas won the game. It's science. I'm sorry, everyone. Like we've been talking about formations and players and whatever, but it was actually just queerness. It was queer energy, um, which, you know, and the, the end point of that thought train is that it means that they have to wear them forever now. 
I, I don't, you know, that's just how that's, it's the law. Um, no, look, it was great. And it was so, it was so significant for a number of different reasons. The first is that this is the first time that uh, an Australian football team has engaged in a pride initiative in an international fixture. Um, it's, you know, probably very fitting that it comes from the Matildas, given the connections with the community and how many of the players themselves are part of the community. Um, and I think even like, uh, please listeners, correct me if I'm wrong, but I actually feel like this is the first Australian national team of any sport to wear rainbow numbers in an international game. Uh, it might be just like a like a real niche Australian national team, like a, I don't know, water polo or something. But I feel like this is the first sort of major national team that's done something like this. So that's, I mean, that's that's so significant for so many reasons. And it folds into this larger story that is being written about the Matildas now, which is that, yes, the things that they're doing on the field matter. Absolutely. The things that we have been talking about for all this episode, for most of the podcast history that we've had, has been talking about what we see on the field. But ultimately, the legacy, and I know this word is getting very tired now, but the legacy that this team is going to leave is not just based on what how they perform on the pitch during the Women's World Cup. It's not just about how they play in a 4-4-2 versus a 4-3-3. It's not just about what happens in the four lines. It's about the way that they affect people. It's about the connection that they form with the country. It's about how they inspire other people to get part of the game. It's about the kind of message that they send about who they are and about what football is. And having an initiative like this, which when we asked about it, every single player was on board with it. Um, they did the whole education piece for Australia. They, were, they allowed the players to give them feedback, um, all the kinds of good things that you need to do before you launch something like this. And all the players were around it. We asked every single player after the game, how, what does this thing mean to you? And all of them spoke so glowingly about why this matters, about the importance of being able to represent the community that they're part of and the community that so many women's football fans are part of as well. And about being able to stand up for what they believe in. You know, that's a really, I think when you look at sort of world sport at the moment, the biggest shift that's happened has been that so many clubs, so many leagues, so many players have started to really embrace the idea that they're not just athletes. They are people in the world. They're engaged in culture and politics. They have principles. They have values. They have a moral compass. They know that by virtue of their platforms, they have a really big megaphone and they can change conversations with what they do with that. And so being able to sit here and talk about the fact that the Matildas are the first national team to wear rainbow numbers on the backs of their jerseys in an international game, to know walking around the stadium in Parramatta that there were rainbow t-shirts being sold to families and, and kids and young people who were coming along, some maybe for the very first time, to know that this is happening concurrently with World Pride and it's happening next week as well with the, the launch of the inaugural A-Leagues Pride Round, to know all this stuff is happening in the game, like to be part of the community that has been so neglected by football for such a long time and to see that its leaders are now finally sort of turning towards us and being like, we want you in this. We want you as part of this family because you have always been part of this family. It's just that we've never really acknowledged it before. 
that in itself is incredibly special. It's incredibly moving. And I was like, I got a little bit teary as well when I saw the Matildas coming out and all the little mascots were carrying the big, um, the big flags, which had the, the, the rainbow and the trans flag on it. Um, so, yeah, so many folks that I know in the game are part of this space and to have and be represented by a national team like the Matildas who see us and to embrace us. Um, yeah, it, it means a lot. So that's a, a big gushy how good, I suppose. And on that big gushy how good note, we're going to end this because uh, we got stuff to do, but we'll see you like later in the week for Jamaica in Newcastle. Um, but as always, thank you so much for tuning in. We are at, we are on espn.com.au and the ESPN app. Uh, you can always find us on Spotify, Apple, Google, all of the usual pod spots. Leave a review, subscribe if you like what we're doing and you get all of the episodes straight into your feed. Uh, all of our stuff will be on our socials, so at the Far Post Pod, everywhere, every social platform you could possibly think of. Um, but until next week, go Tilly. Thank you.